have always been fascinated by jaywalking just as a term, wondering where does jaywalking come from? Two biggest sources of English words, of course, are the historical Old English vocabulary, or the Anglo-Saxon language of Britain, and, of course, the Latin-based Norman French that came in after the Norman Conquest. Coming up on Word Matters, another pair of words doing the same job, but slightly differently, and criminalized walking. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Neil Servan, Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. Imagine, if you will, wanting to describe a task that one can accomplish. Would you say that it's doable, or is it feasible? Is there a difference? And how did English end up with so many pairs of words for communicating a single idea? First up, we have Peter Sokolowski with Old English and Latin doubles. One of the reasons we have such a rich vocabulary in English is because we have borrowed words from all different kinds of sources. And in fact, borrow is this funny word that linguists use because we never give the words back. That means they've become part of the English language. But these two biggest sources of English words, of course, are the historical Old English vocabulary or the Anglo-Saxon language of Britain and, of course, the Latin-based Norman French that came in after the Norman Conquest. And so we have often what are sometimes called doublets or synonyms, broadly speaking, words that kind of mean the same thing semantically, but are often used in different places in terms of usage. In other words, lean and skinny are not exactly interchangeable. But if you were to define them offhand, you might use the same words, right? Think of something very basic, like the difference between clean and cleanse, which obviously have the same root. But then in a classic case of this sort of pairing of an Old English with a Latin-based word, how about the words dead and deceased, which in their basic meanings actually do mean the same thing, but we wouldn't use them in the same places, would we? Right. And there's so many of these. Think of readable versus legible, or watch versus visualize, or late as opposed to dilatory, or same as opposed to equal. There's so many things, ownership and provenance, newness and novelty, Needless and unnecessary, buy and purchase. We have so many of these. Some of them are just almost so obvious we don't think of them, like belly and abdomen, or clean and sanitize, or gift and present. In every one of these cases, the first word I'm using is from Old English, and the second is one of these French-Latin terms that has come into the language later. And one of these pairs that does a lot of work in English is doable and feasible. And what's interesting about this to me is that do is a very particular kind of English word. It's an auxiliary verb. It's a function word like be or have or can. It helps other words do what they need to do. <laughs> right. And it's also one of the most common words in the language. It's used Super common. By any speaker of English is going to use the word do or one of the forms of do hundreds of times a day. Do is one of the workhorses of the language for sure. And we can say doable, and doable is a useful word. But there's this other word, feasible, and feasible comes from the French verb faire and the French word faisable, which means the same thing, means able to do or capable of being done. And what's interesting to me is that these words kind of land in different places. The company they keep is different. This relationship of these two words echoes the relationships 
that we see between these kinds of pairs, between the Old English words and the Latin words so often. In other words, if the difference between the Old English word being the kind of household word or the homey word or the friendly word, as opposed to the Latin word meaning the technical word or the medical word or the legal word, like, for example, clean versus sanitize. Or belly and abdomen. I belly think that's and abdomen. a really good case. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or lying and mendacious, murder and homicide. We have these pairings, opening and aperture, brotherhood and fraternity, teaching and pedagogy, or teeth and dentition. You know, every single time it seems the Latin word refers to something more technical or legal or medical or somehow more abstract than the sort of more earthy English terms. Feasible is associated with terms like option or alternative, a feasible solution, a feasible plan, whereas doable we attach to things that are much more concrete, a doable target or a doable task. And I get these collocations, these groupings of words from some corpus searches to see which ones are the most frequently paired with these words. And what's interesting to me is that doable has this sort of practical sense of practicable. We can make this happen, whereas feasible kind of means possible, as if this is an idea and not a thing. I think it's funny that you can, That's like how, something that yeah. is doable, you can do something that is doable, but you can't feasible something That's that is right. feasible. We don't have the verb. Well, in the same way you mentioned legible and readable. Legible, I think, is borrowed wholly from Latin, whereas yep. people understand that unit to read, and yep. then they understand that ible it's a suffix that you can attach to different verbs to make something that is possible to do something. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if something is possible to read, it is readable, whereas legible, it's not possible to ledge something. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. So legible has its own semantic attachment to it, whereas readable kind of uses a twofold logic behind it. And yet people know both particles really well. So they might opt for readable rather than legible for certain circumstances. That ending, the A-B-L-E or I-B-L-E ending, that does come from French. As English speakers, we mash it together with a lot of old English terms like doable, for example. And it's mm -hmm. completely transparent and understandable today. Understandable, get it? We frequently encounter something like a feasibility study. And that automatically brings to mind architecture or planning or budgeting. We don't do doability studies, although doability is a word that could be used for sure. It would be understood. Doability um, study sounds way more friendly. There's an emotional distance, I find, with many of these words. A speaker of English who grows up speaking English might ask a stranger, is your mother deceased? But one would not ask, is your mother dead? And again, those old English terms tend to be more close to the emotions, closer to the heart, closer to the home. And therefore, the emotional distancing of these Latin-based terms. I think that also one of the things that determines that formality and the decision between using dead and deceased, dead has many other meanings. The line went dead. The phone line went dead. That's a dead topic. Yeah. Our chances are dead. It has all these metaphorical applications, whereas deceased is deceased. I think there's sort of an understanding that there's a time for that metaphorical language or that language that can be casually applied to other contexts. And there are certain times that are not. And so when you're talking about a person who is no longer living, in many contexts, you want to be specific and just want to use that word that applies to that one context rather than a word like dead, which can be applied to so many others. Yeah, and possibly dead being from Old English, it's had much more time to develop all those different senses, too. Mm -hmm. right. Although they're both old at this point. Sure, of course, of yeah. course. I think there's a specificity often in these Latinate terms. And so there's a narrowness of application yeah. that makes them useful when you need to be precise. Think of the animal terms. 
the old English terms like cat and dog and feline and canine, horse and right. equine, leaf and foliage, time and temporal, or green and verdant. We really yeah. do have a sense of richness. And I have to say, you know, the English vocabulary is so big, partly for this reason. Something as basic as kingly and royal, which are clearly English and French words, they are synonymous in so many ways, and yet English has these sort of subtle ways of drawing distinctions. There's semantic duplications. Absolutely. Yeah. And yet the usage, the company the words keep is what I mean by usage. The way you encounter these words is often very specific and requires you to learn a lot about the culture and the literature to recognize the difference between kingly and royal, for example. It's interesting, too, to go back to the Latin term feasible or feasibility to connect to other words that are related to it, like malfeasance, wrongdoing, or misfeasance, which means to trespass, or nonfeasance, all legal terms, or the word feasance itself, which is kind of obsolete, but a legal term in English that meant the execution of a duty. It's interesting to see, too, what words stick and what words sort of fall away over time. And which words enjoy greater usage? So I noticed that feasible and doable both date to the 15th century. They mm -hmm. are the same age. But if you look at our in-house Merriam-Webster literary database, our database of literature, it's 18th, 19th, some early 20th century literature. If you look at that database, there are no examples of doable. Interesting. And there are plenty of examples of feasible. So these were, you know, basically the same age. But feasible has enjoyed lots of use, and doable, in literary context anyway, has not. Doable is not in Shakespeare. It's not in the King James Bible. It's not in any of the founding documents of the United States, for example, which were written by very literary-minded people in the late 18th century. So that's interesting. And, of course, those dates, you realize, Emily, are also because that ending required French to be there. You know, so do was ancient, but doable was new. Right. But not all that new. Right. I think it's still fascinating that the word doable has historically not been done very much. <laughs> it strikes me as a word that might be grabbed on the fly. I need to do this. Oh, I didn't know it was doable. It kind of felt like it was like invented for the purpose of needing something to attach to do. Whereas feasible has this kind of longer tradition behind it. And then that's why we don't say we need to feed something. <laughs> I wonder if early uses of doable are kind of jocular. Like as I think about it now, it does seem kind of like a jokey kind of a word. Even today, it sure does. Again, these old English terms often are closer to home. So there's an emotional difference. I would posit that there's a, an emotional connection that we have to some words that distinguishes them from others. And that's kind of a fascinating gray area of linguistics. You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. We'll be right back after the break. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Neil Servin. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters 
at m-w.com. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for the Word of the Day, a brief look at the definition and history of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. Pedestrians necessarily have a lot on their minds. Do I need an umbrella? Is that car going to turn in front of me? Are these boots up to the task of getting me through that puddle up there? And then there's the question of jaywalking. Cross the street at the wrong location and you've committed a crime. We're not so much interested in the crime as in the word that's used to refer to it. Why is it called jaywalking? Here's Amon Shea with the scoop on this bane of the pedestrian's existence. I think of the hosts of this show, I am, correct me if I'm wrong, the only native New Yorker. You guys are all Western Massachusetts. I am not a native New Yorker. Right. <laughs> and one of the things that New Yorkers have is a kind of astonishing provincialism. We sometimes are unaware of things that happen in New York, happen in other places in the world. For instance, when you guys cross the street, assuming you all have streetlights in Western Massachusetts, and when you cross in a major metropolitan area and the light is not in your favor, and you're on foot, what do you call that activity? Do you call that jaywalking? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, so I, I think of jaywalking more as crossing where there is no crosswalk. Oh, okay. So that I'm with Emily on that. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah. I think in New York, jaywalking is specifically the act of just running across a red light. Um, ah. Do you have a different term for crossing not at an intersection? We just call that crossing the street. <laughs> <laughs> and we define jaywalking as to cross the street carelessly or in an illegal manner so as to be endangered by traffic. So I don't think that my understanding of it is necessarily the common or certainly the correct one. But jaywalking is kind of like the national pastime of New York, especially when I was growing up. Everybody jaywalked all the time, and it seemed like it wasn't quite as common elsewhere. I've always been fascinated by jaywalking just as a term, wondering where does jaywalking come from? And oddly enough, it turns out that what's not odd is that it's an early 20th century term. But it was preceded slightly. Before we had the jaywalker, we had the jay driver. And jay driver begins to come up. And it comes up in Kansas for some reason. Our earliest citations are in 1905. And there was an article called Concerning the Jay Driver. And the jay driver was somebody who drove on the wrong side of the road. And the, this is automobiles? Yes, this is automobiles. Okay. Or horse-drawn yeah, carriages, yeah, yeah. but any kind of wheeled vehicle that was driven on the wrong side of the road. It seems to come from the sense of J, meaning kind of rube, or unsophisticated. And what's interesting is that J. Walker caught on almost immediately. We transferred from J. Driver to J. Walker, but the initial use of J. Walker was very similar. The initial use of J. Walker was somebody who walked on the wrong side of the sidewalk, meaning that they didn't walk in the outer breadth of the sidewalk. Apparently, this is the kind of thing that people used to get upset about. Maybe some people still do. But the two shared space for a couple of years, you know, until 1910 or so. And then it seems like Jay Driver had a precipitous decline mm. in use. And then heard of it. Jay Driver really fell away and Jay Walker stuck around and broadened, obviously, from meaning walking on the wrong side of the sidewalk to be uh, somebody who crosses in an unsafe manner. It's kind of a shaming term. Yes. Right. The J being a rube, as you said. Yeah, so it's, so it it's is. ultimately about trying to impose some kind of sense of propriety. It is. And it's interesting to me that it's kept that sense of shame, but also that it's kept its kind of applicability just to crossing traffic. 
it really hasn't broadened much. Like it broadened right away and then it stopped. So in terms of semantic drift, it kind of showed really early promise. Like this is the word that can go far. And then it said, oh, I'm kind of happy just meeting somebody who crosses the street in an improper way. I'd always associated the idea of jaywalking with like J as in like a pop and J. Uh, right. I was wondering. I think we defined it as a strutting, supercilious person. Right. And I believe it relates to birds, I think. Right. So, kind of so this... a jaywalker was somebody who just struts across the street. Pop and J comes from a word meaning parrot. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's originally oh. Arabic. It's like the idea of uh, being a little too proud and not caring about the activity that's going around around you and making other people stop for you is the kind of the idea of jaywalking that I have. It's kind of this way of telling off the motorists who then have to then accommodate you or, or else they run you over and get go to jail or something. I think that jaywalk, jaywalking, jaywalker, has a number of things that are kind of odd about it. One is that it's not from New York. But that's just my own provincialism showing. Two is that it did have this very distinct meaning and it shifted right away. And three is that it was preceded by J. Driver, which has completely died away, and it's never then taken on this any kind of extended non-traffic meaning. I like to contrast this to another word which comes from the fertile ground of traffic studies, which is gridlock. And gridlock did originate in New York City in about 1980 and referred specifically to traffic jam in which intersecting streets became so congested vehicles could not pass. And it's still used this way. There's gridlock in Midtown, there's gridlock downtown, on the east side, whatever. What's interesting about it is that our earliest record of gridlock comes up in 1980, and within the year, it had already been appropriated, and people were talking about government gridlock that prevented any action. Did you say 1980? Yeah, 1980. That's so much newer than I thought it would be. I know, it's very, very new. I would have thought it was much older. Right, you would think, because we have had traffic jams of this nature, not since time immemorial, but ever since we've had means of driving around places. But it's a very recent word, and then it's almost as though people kind of seized upon this as a very useful word so quickly that within the year, it's already changed and taken on this decidedly figure of meaning, having nothing whatsoever to do with vehicular traffic. I'm wondering if there was a specific like purpose to introducing the term gridlock as a certain kind of traffic jam, why, yeah, why well, you wanted to specify. And I'm thinking about like radio traffic reports. I don't know how old those are. Was that a new thing in the 1980s, perhaps, when you had your drive-time traffic report? There is a specific event, actually. And although what we know of gridlock is that it may well have existed before 1980. Our earliest written record so far is 1980. But really, the precipitating factor was a transit strike that happened in New York City. And Uh what happens when we have transit strikes in New York City is there are a million and one yahoos who all think, oh, no problem, I'm just going to drive the car downtown. And everybody Mm -hmm. drives the car downtown, and then you get massive gridlock. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why public transportation makes cities work, and it's because you don't have everybody driving their car. And this has happened in my lifetime, and several times that we've had strikes is you have horrendous vehicular traffic as a result. And so there was a kind of large transit strike in 1980, and it lasted more than a week. And then there were immediately significantly elevated levels of traffic, and gridlock was widely used, along with another word, which was spillback, which didn't really catch on. Spillback, in other words, the traffic on maybe the adjoining street can't make a turn because that street is full, and then that causes kind of gridlock on a third street. Presumably, but 
It's just had so little use since 1980 that I don't think we really know. So what was the early figurative use of gridlock about? Was it legislative gridlock specifically? Uh, well, we have a citation from a Rochester newspaper, the Democrat and Chronicle, which says the Environmental Protection Agency's policies make it possible to burn anything else, he said, a governmental gridlock that prevents any action. That was in 1980 in November. Oh, okay. So within the year. That's um, so wild. Right. But it does often seem to be political. In 1981, we have a citation what the 1978 amendments actually did were to create a kind of gridlock the billboard industry wants. So that's maybe more business-related. The Baltimore Sun, also in 1981. I always mentioned satellites and landlines and remotes, like I know what I'm talking about. But really, it's like economics. When I hear about it, my mind goes into gridlock. And so that's not related to anything aside of one fellow's inability to properly form thoughts. So that's certainly non-political. It's used in political contexts all the time. Yes. Now, now yeah. the, yeah. I think the dominance yeah. has been political gridlock. Yeah. yeah. And there are other traffic terms that have figurative use that are also active in politics. Sure. Even omnibus, right? Oh, right. We talked right. about that before, right. about bus. An omnibus bill means yep. one that incorporates everything. That's right. But omnibus is also the source of our word bus, the, the word vehicle. Bus. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. Are there any other traffic terms that have... Well, red light. Red light, right. yeah. When I think of gridlock, I have not spent a huge amount of time in New York City, but I have read more than once the book, The Pushcart War. Oh, sure. Have you all ever read yeah, that? Yeah, I love that book. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. And it is a book about these enormous trucks that are just overtaking the streets of Manhattan. Three different trucking companies. They have all these absolutely enormous trucks, and they're causing enormous traffic problems in Manhattan. And they pin the blame on the pushcart vendors. And the pushcart vendors push back, and there are pea shooters involved, and it is an absolutely fantastic book. I kind of had assumed that the word gridlock appears in that book, but apparently it doesn't. I don't think that it does. Yeah. But I could be wrong. I think they just talk about traffic jams in that book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and traffic jam, that's another, the idea of jamming. Sure. That fast lane. I have to say, I didn't immediately know when I heard the term gridlock that it referred to a specific kind of jam in regard to the grid of city streets and intersections. And so I'm trying to think if I had ever heard it, like on a highway traffic report, could you have gridlock on I-95 or something like that? I'm wondering if it's sort of extended beyond the city use, just as a other way of saying traffic jam. I don't know, because we do have the word just traffic, traffic sure. on I-90. And we say bumper to bumper. We use modifiers of the term traffic to talk about mm -hmm. it being just how bad it is. I mean, one of the things that we know about language is that it doesn't follow the kinds of rules that we want it to follow. So if there's a term that we think, oh, that's a very useful term, it mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that it will be adopted. And one of my favorite examples of that is in Henry Cockrum's 1623 dictionary. He has the word debacate, which means to revile one after the manner of drunkards. <laughs> In no way can we say this is a just world, that this word has not survived. It is so useful. It is so applicable. Everyone has at some point in their lives, if you live long enough, been reviled by somebody else in the manner of a drunkard. <laughs> and yet none of us know or ever use the word debacate. So there really is no justice, linguistically speaking, in the world. So we can't expect traffic words to follow the same kind of orderly path of the universe that we wish they would. Sometimes we have two words for something. Sometimes we have no words where we definitely need one. And yet we can debacate 
at traffic? Is this a transitive verb? Do you debacate gridlock? You know, Henry Cockrum didn't get into transitive and intransitive. <laughs> okay. He just kind of threw words out there and hoped they would stick, and most of them didn't. Well, we just want to make sure that you stay in your lane. know what you think about Word Matters. Review us on Apple Podcasts or email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by Adam Maid and John Vosey. For Neil Servan, Amon Shea, and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media.